Welcome to the city's backyard with Matt Seiko. The city's backyard starts now. Happy New Year, everybody. It is the year in review of 2023. I want to thank all of my guests that were on in the past year and uh, also all my sponsors for supporting the City's Backyard podcast, which is about the arts, entertainment, music, and community. And uh, being a former radio DJ for many years, I I always had a a passion for rock and roll music and music in general, as as I still like to DJ. And uh, the podcast came about to support the arts. So in the past year, we've tried to keep up with doing that and giving you variety with our guests we've had on great comedians we've had on actors we've had on uh, just all walks of life from the backyard so uh, i wanted to narrow this episode down because you know i had a a passion for classic rock especially when i was on the radio for many years and like i said music in general But I'm just so happy that we had so many great rock and roll icons on in the last year. So many great musicians and artists. So I wanted to uh, figure out a way to narrow it down. And it was so hard to pick, you know, how I was going to do that. And I figured the best way was to find the musicians, the rock and roll icons that had the most longevity with one artist or a band. This year, we're paying tribute to the great rock and roll legend, Denny Lane from the Moody Blues and Paul McCartney and Wings. And Denny was with Wings longer than any other band member. So, uh, of course, he qualified. And Dennis Dunaway, original bassist of Alice Cooper. Uh, He was with Alice for many years and then on and off with Alice over the last 20 years. Of course, Dennis lives in the backyard, backyard of New York City, of course. And also uh, Joe Vitale, who lives in the Midwest. He's been with Joe Walsh for many, many years. And Liberty DeVito was with Billy Joel, Billy Joel's drummer, for 30 years. I mean, three decades of playing drums in Billy Joel's band. Liberty uh, tells the story of the falling out with with Billy and all that. But we're going to be playing snippets of, you know, each of these interviews. And of course, Gary Peterson, last uh, active member in the rock band, the Guess Who legendary band. Five artists. You've got uh Dennis Dunaway, Denny Lane, Joe Vitale, Liberty DeVito, and Gary Peterson all coming up. It's the best of the year in review, rock and roll icons with the longest longevity and over the years. So more coming up right after this. Hi, I'm Rick Tavella, owner of Rick's Main Roofing, a family-owned and operated business since 1948, specializing in all types of residential and commercial roofing. We are a GAF Residential Master Elite and GAF Commercial Master Select certified contractors offering the finest warranties in the industry. This certification is only given to the best of the best. Brooks Main Roofing services all of Fairfield and Westchester County and offers a 24-hour emergency service. Look us up, ricksmainroofing.com. Live theater is back and in your own backyard at Curtain Call. There's always something on at Curtain Call at the Sterling Farms Theater Complex, Newfield Avenue in Stamford. 
For half the price of a Broadway ticket, a family of four can see a show at Curtain Call. Call 203-461-6358 or go online to CurtainCallInc.com. That's CurtainCallInc.com. We're back. You're listening to The City's Backyard. The original Alice Cooper group, they sold millions of singles and albums and uh, were on the cover of Forbes for having the largest grossing tour in 1973 over Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. I mean, Dennis, just an honor to have you in the backyard today. Thanks for dropping by. So you met Alice Cooper. You're you're from Oregon, right? I was born in Oregon, but the band met, met in Phoenix, Arizona. We all lived there at the time during high school years. And Alice was, which which was his stage name, but Alice Cooper uh, was a Detroit guy, right? He was born in in the Motor City, right? Yeah, and then we had two guys, uh, Neil Smith and Glenn Buxton. We're both from uh, Akron, Ohio. This is just so great. And now you have this super group with a couple of the guys from Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, Joe Bouchard and Albert Bouchard. Uh, they were our former members of Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, we met in 1972 and did some touring and have been friends ever since. But you spent a lot of time playing with Alice Cooper, uh, just a legendary band basically i mean you you guys were like the originals <laughs> you know what i mean as far as uh the theater goes with with shows you know being a a band that is theatrical well alice and i uh his name was fence at the time but i'll call him alice <laughs> uh we we were uh he was just a 15 year old freshman and i was a 16 year old sophomore at cortez high school in phoenix and we we met and connected in art class, and then we also ran cross country, and we were in journalism together. Uh, but we decided to start a band when I had seen Dwayne Eddy uh, play between a double feature movie theater uh, movies at a theater, and I said, "Hey, we got to start a band." And it didn't quite happen until the Beatles hit. And then we started a band. We said, but our band is going to have surrealistic, artistic ideas in it. So from the very beginning, the very first show that we did where we could actually play instruments had a guillotine, coffins, spider webs, and tombstones on stage. So, uh, you know, we that was our kids' dream. And uh, we clawed our way to the top of the glittery rock pile. <laughs> that is just awesome. So when you were doing this uh, variety show in high school, you didn't even know how to play bass. And there was only one real uh, musician that could play on the uh, in the show, right? Well, the very first thing we did was really a spoof on the Beatles. Uh, we called ourselves the Earwigs, and we wore wigs, and we were from Cesspool, England. But <laughs> but that particular show, Glenn Buxton played guitar, and another, we were in the Letterman's Club, and it was a Letterman's Club-sponsored talent show. And another Letterman played a snare drum and a cymbal, and basically Alice and uh, another uh, Letterman, John Spear, and I faked playing guitar, and we did Beatles songs with with uh, sports lyrics 
And uh, it was a big hit. I mean, everybody was screaming for us and everybody thought, oh, that was a fun joke. And Alice and I are going, you know what? That was so much fun. We got to really start a band and learn how to play. And everybody decided what they wanted to play before I did. And I ended up with bass. <laughs> you you met Alice Cooper in art class in high school? Yeah. So you were originally into art. I was I was so into art that in grade school, a lot of kids didn't even know my name. They called me the artist. Wow. And you were speaking of the Beatles. I mean, you know, everybody's inspiration when we come when we talk about musicians, it's either, you know, Elvis, uh, depending on what decade you grew up in or the Beatles, pretty much for the most part. And you were the quiet Beatle. You were the quiet guy in the band. Is that how you got nicknamed Dr. Dreary, which I you know, well, yes, because everybody in the band had this uh, amazing sense of humor, and I was uh, excruciatingly shy. I was introverted. I was the quiet observer. Were you a uh, nerd? One, uh, no, not really. I was just deep in thought about what the band was going to do next and coming <laughs> up with ideas. And wow. I was, and so they would be you know, uh, in the station wagon driving around the country, they would be firing off all of these amazing witticisms. And then once in a while, I'd throw in something so abstract that everything would come to a screeching halt while everybody wondered what I meant by that. And then that's where the nickname came from, really. <laughs> this is this is just so much fun to have you, uh, you know, on this episode. And I want to talk about how you co-wrote Schools Out and I'm 18, and I want to talk about how those songs came about, because when I was growing up, I mean, come on, those songs were all over the airwaves. I mean, again, you guys are the original theatrical rock bands, are you not? Well, we had our influences as well. I mean, I'm very proud that other people uh, might have been influenced by us, but I mean, we had Little Richard, and we had Pete Townsend smashing his guitar and Hendrix lighting his on fire and Jim Morrison and all of that stuff going on too. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, you, that's how art works. You have your influences, but then you add something and make it your own. That's exactly what Denny Lane from the Moody Blues and Wings said uh, on an earlier podcast episode. So uh, you're right on the money with that one. <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with Denny Lane, right, Dennis? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never want to argue with him. I, he's so great. He, and whatever he said, I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking to Dennis Dunaway. Uh, he's in the backyard hanging out. Before we take our next break, let's chat briefly about School's Out and I'm 18. Iconic, you know, songs from the 70s. Uh, no More Mr. Nice Guy, Billion Dollar Babies. So you co-wrote these two amazing songs with Alice Cooper. How did School's Out, <laughs> I mean, how did that come about? Well, And, it, and I'm 18, if you want to do. Right. Well, <laughs> well, the story starts with I'm 18, because I don't know how many people out there realize, but the first two Alice Cooper albums were pretty abstract. They were artistic statements and the last thing we wanted is to be commercial in any way but that didn't put food on the table so we decided okay let's write a song that's going to be relatable and uh, we talked to some record executives and uh who, who's the 
the biggest demographic for record buying public. So they're they're like, well, an 18 year old, somebody that's still living at home, not paying rent and and has money to buy records. So 18 year old is the age that buys the most records. So we said, okay, we can relate to that because we all went to school uh, in the same area during the same years uh, when we were all 18. So we wrote I'm 18, which broke out of Canada, CKLW. And uh, it was an amazing hit in in that area, which covered Detroit. Uh, they were playing the song every fifth song. It was unbelievable. And then uh, so that now all of a sudden we're getting all these gigs and everything. So that was on the Love It to Death album, which was produced by Bob Ezrin, Jack Richardson overseeing it, uh, who was from the Guess Who <clears throat> producer. Uh, and then uh, so uh, then we did the Killer album and it and it had a uh, Be My Lover was a decent hit. Under My Wheels was a decent hit, but it didn't grab that audience. So by the time we got to the Schools Out album, we said, okay, we got to write a song for that 18-year-old guy again. And we came up with the idea of Schools Out. And uh, it was like uh, one of those gifts from the creative gods that just <laughs> dropped in our lap. You know, everything everything fell into place on that song, uh, except for one line. We got stuck. The whole song was finished, but there was one lyric that we couldn't think of anything for. And I said, hey, we're the kids from the back of the class. We can't even think of a word that rhymes. <laughs> and then the song was done. And that was the first song that we ever recorded that we all felt this is a hit. And it was and still is. It's been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And uh, thankfully, uh, even these days, you know, it used to be the parents dragging their kids to meet me at autograph shows or whatever. But uh, then it turned around to the kids dragging their parents. <laughs> And the famous and it, school bell uh, sound effect at the end. I mean, every kid loved to hear that bell. <laughs> uh, that was the most exciting thing <laughs> when you were in school, whether you loved school or not. That final bell was exciting. Unbelievable. Just great stuff there. I mean, those songs really do stand the test of time if you're talking about classic rock or even hard rock or or even, like you said, they were hits. Thanks so much for dropping by the backyard today, Dennis. Oh, it was fun, Matt. I love stopping by the backyard. You are tuned into the Year in Review 2023 Rock and Roll Icons with longevity in their careers with one artist or band. And uh, on the way next, we're going to give you the late Denny Lane, the great rock and roll legend from the Moody Blues and Paul McCartney and Wings. Denny was with uh, Paul and Linda longer than any other member in Wings. So we're going to pay tribute to him coming up next. 
Skip the trip to the city and see Broadway actors right here in Fairfield County for a fraction of the price. Located at 509 Westport Avenue in Norwalk, Music Theater of Connecticut is your ticket to local professional theater. Get your tickets now and experience one-of-a-kind productions in our intimate, state-of-the-art black box theater. For showtimes and reservations, visit our website at musictheaterofct.com or call us at 203-454-3883. Music Theater of Connecticut, where theater isn't just observed, it's experienced. Don't let an uncomfortable home keep you from enjoying it. Call the Heating and Cooling Company of Norwalk at 203-855-0858 today and schedule your free system evaluation or Google them. The Heating and Cooling Company of Norwalk. The City's Backyard Podcast is about the arts, entertainment, music, and your community. It's The City's Backyard, airing on all platforms. Yeah, you came from a big family in England. It was a very musical family, too. Um, not over the top musically, but, you know, after the war, everybody kind of got into music as a way of getting out or joined the army. You know, it was like a way of getting away from, from your, if you like, being stuck in one spot and, and starting again. And it was a whole that renaissance of music came from, you know, after the war, people starting their lives off over again. So it was a really encouraging time. And you were, I was encouraged by my parents and my sisters and brother to just go and do what I wanted to do. So nothing got in my way, which is great. You know, some people have that problem with their families, but it didn't happen with mine. <laughs> yeah, like the royal family right now. Uh, <laughs> so uh, before we get into the Moody Blues, let's go back to your first band. It was called Denny and the Diplomats. And the name came yeah. from the fact that everyone had a, a backyard and a <laughs> den where you would hang out. And you're hanging out in the backyard right now. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, well, that's why they call me Denny, I suppose. I mean, that's where I kind of got it from. Uh, but the other bit came from everybody had a na- stage name in them days. And the Lane came from two people that I admired. At the time, my sister was a big fan of Frankie Lane's, and I was a fan of Cleo Lane, who's a jazz singer, Cleo Lane and Johnny Dankworth. And, uh, you know, I kind of had that group name, but uh, but it wasn't – it was more a group, I, although I was a singer and guitar player. I mean, Bev Bevan was in that band, you know, and he went on to do ELO. So it was like a great little group, but then none of them wanted to just turn professional. So that's why I kind of joined up with the Moody's guys to go to to go to London eventually. And we did. Yeah. So, and, and and before we get into the Moody Blues, your inspiration as far as rock and roll goes was yeah. Elvis and what, Buddy Holly and, and all of them? Definitely Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry because they, they were songwriters. That was my main attraction to playing guitar and, you know, singing your own songs. Elvis, of course, because he changed the world uh, by, you know, mixing country with, with, with whatever. And he, he made that, you know, feasible thing to do, which we've all done since. I mean, the Beatles did it with George Martin. I did it a little bit with, with my string band you know, where you mix music together and you come up with another form of music instead of wanting to copy the, your idols. You kind of use a bit of each one of them and then you make it your own from that. The song Go Now, which I had a chance to play on the radio, you know, when I started my radio career, and uh, Go Now was was a cover song. And just, you know, you, you, you mentioned Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry borrowed your amp. Was that when you were with the Moody yeah. Blues? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, well, we did the first, our first tour actually was with Chuck Berry and we kind of closed the first half and he used my amp because it was the best amp that we all had. We didn't actually back him. He had his own backing band. And, um, you know, he wanted to use my amp because he said, oh, that's the amp I'm going to use. I said, well, of course, yeah, but I was just joking. <laughs> and anyway, it's when Go Now went up the charts, thanks to that tour. It kind of promoted that song, you know, which was out. And it followed it going up the charts because of that. So thank you, Chuck. But uh, he was a nice guy. He was great to us. Him and his sister was with him. And, and he kept himself to himself. And he was just a great guy. So... And huge in England, of course. So that that was really it. But anyway, the song Go Now had been, I found, we found that song because it had a piano on it and we had a piano in the band. And therefore, you know, we did it because of that. And uh, of course, the original was great, like a classic uh, gospel style song. But we did it, and we got this big hit with it. So thank you, uh, Bessie Banks. I found that it was interesting, you know, in the 60s, that there was the camaraderie with the Beatles and all these bands. And then you would actually see American bands come and play in, in London or, or in that area. Uh, you know, bands like the Birds. And yeah, so so... The music in the 60s sort of, to me, sounded a little distorted, you know? Was it because of the microphones weren't as good of quality and all of that? I don't know. Maybe, you know, the thing is... Or was we, it a style? It, it kind of pushed it to the edge. The Beatles, you know, to get as much power out of those, whatever that equipment was in the time, you know, we used to, it pushed it to the edge. It wasn't... The music wasn't sunk wasn't as, uh, you know, in your face and the voices were, you know, louder. You could hear everything. But modern stuff, you can hardly hear anything. It's kind of all mixed in together. But that's something to do with the mono thing, you know. And and even to this day, people are trying to get that mono sound more without the distortion. But it, it's on the edge and that's what, as I say, that's what, you know, when, you, when it comes on the radio, you can really, like, it's in your face, you know. So, I mean, yeah. That's what it was for. We were just testing. We were, we were experimenting. You know, none of us knew what we were doing in the studio as far as the actual recording side of it. But um, you know, yeah, we were on the engineers really. Right. The early days of the Beatles and and the Moody Blues and the sixties and stuff. You know, most people when they think of you know Paul McCartney, it's like the, you know they're they're big fans or groupies, but. But for you, it, it's like no big deal. I mean, you were sort of yeah. com- competitive with the Beatles, and you didn't you didn't think of the Beatles that way. You j- you kind of didn't. You just wanted to like sound better, perhaps, than the Beatles. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it: the, the fact that we did a Beatles tour was because we didn't try to sound like them. You know, first of all, we're from Birmingham with different accents, but apart from that. We we did we were more blues based and we had a piano in the band and an extra voice and it, we had a different sound and that's what they liked about us. So I mean, you know, and also we went with Epstein after we we were with the management that we never made any money out of, like a lot of people. So we went with Epstein and became part. And so they got us on that tour. They wanted us on their tour as a as an opener. Um, and that was it, really. But, I mean, like I say, I knew all those guys from Birmingham. I, I opened for them in Birmingham, like I say, with the, the diplomats. 
And uh, Bevel, Bev, Bevanor remembers a story more than me, probably, because he's, he's one of those guys. But, yeah, it was great. And, and I saw them at the beginning of their sort of career, you know, fame, if you like, with, with the dressing room, the screaming kids and all the rest of it, and dressing room full of uh, autograph books and all that. So then we met up again in London later and, and became pretty good friends. We live close by, actually. To where they all lived, so we yeah, all came yeah. down from from the south, from the north to the south. You know. Your time with Wings from seventy one to eighty one. We're talking to Denny Lane. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, let's get right to it. Wings. How did Wings form? It was a simple uh, matter of Paul knowing me from the past. Excuse me. So, you know, he wanted to work. I think he. He didn't want to put another band together at first. I'm sure of that. And I think he was worried about that up in Scotland with Linda. Didn't know where to go from there. Um, and I think she probably talked him into it in some ways to say, come on, you can do it. And he, he called me. Well, he'd already done Ram with Denny Sywell. So he, he had a drummer in mind. And he called me to say, do you fancy putting a band together, which is the way he talks? Do you fancy? I said, yeah, sure. But I was I was actually sitting at home waiting to go on you know on tour again with my band, which was a, the Electric String Band at the time, and I'd just done that thing with Ginger Baker and all that. But I was sitting there, the phone goes, and uh, next minute I was on on a plane to Scotland, and we kind of were away from the public eye and all that, and and just kind of you know I was like I was visiting an old friend or something. And uh, I knew him from the 60s really well. We used to talk a lot. We used to go out see bands, like you said, Birds, Loving Spoonful, those kind of bands, Dylan, and, and met a lot of those guys together. You know, and me and Paul actually went to see Jimi Hendrix for the first time. So there you go. And I yeah. ended up doing a show with Jimi Hendrix as a reason. And they were all in the audience, the Beatles. So we knew each other well enough. And he knew that if he got somebody like me in the band, he, he wouldn't have to worry about being treated like a superstar, you know. I think that was his kind of thing, you know. Um, and so he did. He, he called me, and that's how it began, and it went from there, you know. I, I never did feel, like, in, intimidated in any way. You know, I was I was on the outside looking in as far as his, his fame when you'd see him in public, around people and the way he, he handled it was pretty good you know when you think about it <laughs> he, he did a good job of it you know because I, I don't know I couldn't have put up with too much of that pressure like he did but yeah I was I was there as part of that but at the same time we were kind of more friendly and mates than we were you know see what I mean we weren't we weren't in competition now we were working together we wrote together we we did all sorts of stuff together um, so, you know, and I, and with the family, I got, I got to know the family really well. And, and, and it was, it was just a good period for me without having all the stress on my shoulders of putting my own thing together, you know. As far as wings go, you didn't want to copy the Beatles, even, even as wings. And you started playing at universities like on undercover it was like yeah. you know the press didn't uh, announce these these uh shows that you were doing and right. so it was just the three of you it would you know for a long period of time especially well, with was, the band on the run album yeah but it was it was um it was me denny henry mcculloch and then paul and linda 
So it was a five-piece band. But but the thing is, we we turned up at places like that because they already had a built-in audience. We weren't ready to go on the road big time. We didn't want the press, you know, hacking us to pieces, all of that. So that was the best way to do it. And it got us out there doing it. And again, it's like <laughs> you're dealing with an audience that's not expecting anything specially, you know. And it, it was like a, a rehearsal, really, for the, for, the, for the next thing, which was a European tour. So it worked for us that way. You can't just come from being, you know, he didn't want to go out and do Beatles songs, and I didn't want him to either. And, you know, it's like, although I did go now on, on the tour and, and all that, but, you know, we, he, the last thing he wanted to do was try and be, you know, a Beatle anymore. He just was out there. We did a little uh, acoustics section where we had a couple of Beatles songs in there. But generally speaking, it was trying to get our own music out there. Like I said before, you know, he was doing his own thing. He'd already had Ram out and McCartney, the album. So it was just all about a new band. And it kind of worked. And, and it always does work when you're, when you're 100% behind it yourself you know you're not being told what to do by management or anything like that you're just doing it because that's the way you feel you know the time and and it worked you know we, we got pretty close and we got pretty tight so yeah, I, was, you know i was uh i was yeah. born in the late 60s and 68 and so you know during the 70s was as a kid i was exposed to to wings and uh six top 10 singles so you know silly love songs jet band on the run my love all great songs so you like playing on the road uh as opposed to always being in the studio and i mean it must have been tough during the pandemic when you weren't playing out everything was kind of put on hold and now you're back out there i mean this is in your blood you you and that's kind of why you know you drifted apart from wings and and even the moody blues right because yeah. you wanted to play live? Well, yeah, really. Because, you know, once you spend all that time in the studio, you lose the edge. You know, you do. And the only way to get that edge is by performing in front of an audience. You know, it's like when we did Go Now Live, that's what turned us on to, you know, the fact that we were going to record it because the audience liked it before they even knew it. So it was like, okay, let's record that one. People like that one. And, and it was a testing ground for everything. You know, you have more of a life when you're out on the road, and then you can throw a bit of recording and a bit of writing in between what you're doing on the road, but it always has to lean more towards live work to studio work for me. It's always been that way. And so when Paul, and, you know, was so big and all the rest of it, and got done in Japan, and that meant we couldn't work there for a while, it sort of made me think, well, I probably should go and do my own thing. I've got an album I've been working on. I'll go out and promote that. And we just never went back together, that's all. But I actually enjoyed what we were doing with all those people in Montserrat, Ringo, Carl Perkins, and all those people that came out of Stevie Wonder. That was a new direction, but it wasn't really a wings direction. It was something that we wanted to do with people we admired, you know. So that's what I'm saying. This is the same sort of thing for me, where I'm going out and doing something that I really want to do and enjoy doing, you see instead of being like forced to do it or obliged to do it a certain way, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I think it's so cool that you would go see other 
bands and American bands that would come to London, you know, you'd go check them out with Paul or you'd go check them out with John, maybe or Ringo or George, right? That's what we used to do. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, those, those are the things that people love to hear about because it's like your regular guys going and checking out other bands. That's absolutely what it was like. And because, you know, there were like six or seven clubs that we used to go to regularly anyway. You know, late at night after a gig, we used to have a lot of parties at our house as well. So all the music business people would come to them. And you'd all be sitting, oh, where the, the birds are, or the so-and-so, Jose Feliciano's on at the Scotch next week. Fancy going, yeah. And you all turn up, you know. As I say, and that, that's what it was like. And it was really great, the fact that those American bands were wanting to come over and be a part of the British scene, because we, we, we were influenced by America to start with you know, a lot, mostly, and then they have, were influenced by us. So it's all, it's great, you know, it's it's a sort of an, a camaraderie that went on in those days. It wasn't just about Britain, it was about America as well. And so, you know, everybody was happy doing that. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, do you watch any music documentaries these days with all the streaming, you know, yeah. channels? Uh, do you ch- Did you see the Beatles documentary? Yeah, some of it, yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> a lot of it I see it as like an outsider to a certain degree, but then again, I'm an insider, so I go, well, it wasn't quite like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what they're coming across with, but that's not quite right. That's not the way it happened. You know, I see a lot of that. It's, it's like watching a movie about a true story, which is like, well, it's not a true story. It's as close as you can get, but it ain't true. So a lot of it is a bit of a turnoff to me, those documentaries. But it's still good to know certain things that you didn't know about bands. And and you might have met them as well, you know. So there you go. Awesome. Denny Lane, thanks right. so much for dropping Thank by you. the backyard today. You're the best. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Visit Rory's Restaurant, 416 Post Road in Darien. Rory's is where it's always delicious. Try their great selection of mouth-watering appetizers, hot and cold sandwiches, scrumptious entrees, and outrageous soups. Check out their menu at rory's.net or call 203-655-9453 for takeout or curbside pickup. Open seven days. Okay, welcome back. This time around, we're going to go out to uh, the Midwest and talk with legendary classic rock drummer Joe Vitale from Joe Walsh. He's played with the Eagles. He's played with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and uh, many others, including Ringo Starr. So uh, here's a clip from when we had Joe on uh, talking about Vets Aid in San Diego. We're going to the Midwest, Canton, Ohio, where Joe Vitale is right now. He's actually in a studio doing some work, and I appreciate the time, Joe. This is this is so much fun. So uh, let's let's get to the Joe Walsh stuff. When you met him, you both you went to Kent State, or you went there to play in the bands, you know, because there was a big music scene there. Right. I, I did not attend school there. Uh, Joe uh, was enrolled there. Uh, I don't know how much he attended school, but uh, <laughs> he was enrolled there, and. Um, I uh, moved there uh, to to for work because there it was a college town, a lot of clubs, a lot of bands. There was just a ton of work, and so um, uh, I met Joe the year before I moved there. But he, you know, just briefly for a second at a gig, 
And then uh, when I moved there, I ran into him, and he didn't remember me or anything, but uh, he was playing with the James Gang in clubs in Kent, and I was playing with different bands in clubs in Kent, and uh, we'd cross paths once in a while. We we started really hanging out a little bit, and we became good friends. And um, uh, he said way back then, he said, hey, someday we'll, we'll, we'll play in a band together. I said, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I didn't take that, that seriously because, you know, the James Gang were doing really good and everything. But I appreciated him saying that. And then um, I got a call, uh, a breakout call, <laughs> finally get out of the clubs and go and tour with uh, Ted Nugent. And, um, and one of the gigs we did was Ted Nugent. We opened for the James Gang down in Florida. And uh, I got to run into Joe and the guys and, and I hadn't seen him in a while and it was great. And he said, uh, he said, hey, come and hang out at the, at the hotel after the show. I said, oh, yeah, I can't. Let's catch up. Let's hang out. And, and he told me then he said, uh, look, uh, I'm going to move on and do something different um, outside of the gang. And um, he said, I want you uh, to um, play drums for me. I said, fantastic. So I gave Ted a notice and Ted was very sweet about it. He said, man, that's great. You guys will be a great band. And Ted was just so nice about it. What a gentleman. And, um, uh, and so, um, that was uh, fall of 71. I had gotten to Kent in 69. So the fall of 71, uh, I left uh, the band a Nugent band. And then, uh, January 72, I moved to uh, Colorado to uh, start with the uh, Joe and Barnstorm. Let's talk about your longevity with Joe Walsh. Um, do you think that the reason why you and Joe are still getting along is because you had other projects with CSN and he had the projects with the Eagles and you would get time apart, uh, you know, instead of like too much togetherness? Uh, I don't I don't really think of it that way um because anytime we could get together we did and and then he'd go off and do the eagles i'd do other things all that i think it's it boils down to one word and that is chemistry and it's not chemistry is a big word and it's not only personal chemistry it's musical chemistry it's you know road ethics it's stage ethics it's all things road and music put together in chemistry. And you have to get along. You have to musically uh, uh, relate and, 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 you know, be, be on the same page. And there's, there's a ton of little things that throw musicians apart. And, and sometimes it's, it's 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 mostly the chemistry of the music but it's also very you know it has a lot to do with personal stuff you know and i and i and i tell a lot of the kids that i work with uh, if, if if they're up and coming or whatever i say you know 50% of it is your playing and 50% is your personality so you know you can't be an ass and be a great player and expect to get a lot of gig you know you might get some gigs cuz you're a great player but you got to be everything. You got to be a good player. You got to be a nice person. You have to get along with people. You have to to know when to push and, and shove and, and not to push and shove. And you and also me and Joe, we write a lot of songs together. So, you know, there's a chemistry there. It's like, uh, you know, Elton and, and, and Bernie. I mean, them, them guys wrote all those songs hit after hit so there had to be some decent chemistry then because after a while elton didn't need 
Yeah, Bernie and Bernie didn't need Elton after a while, you know, but they stayed together. Joe doesn't need to use me and I can play with other guitar, but there's a chemistry and it's a lot of fun after all these years to still have that, you know. He basically got you into the Eagles to play um, with them on some of the, the shows. And you 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 also uh, recorded uh, one of the songs, Pretty Maids and uh which one was I, that? I wrote that with joe yeah you wrote that wrote, yeah and i did i recorded uh, with him on all the live stuff yeah so he joe said to you listen stick to the program with them they're they're very precise and you said i got it right right but then you, but then you went out and you decided you decided to do some improv thing one night on the well, road <laughs> you that's got what musicians knock. do <laughs> So then what happened? Don Henley knocked on your hotel door after. Well, after we're that? coming out of the. We're coming out of the. Uh, there's a, uh, a song called Those Shoes. And um, oh, yeah, the, those shoes. I was going to ask you about that one. There's a dual talk box solo. It was Don. Hen I'm sorry, Don Felder and Joe Walsh doing dual talk box solo. And they were rocking. It was great. And I'm feeling it. I'm playing drums. And and coming out of their talk box solo, I think uh, on the original record, I think Don played a, a kind of a cool little fill. Well, I went out on my own, played a little bit bigger kind of fill and a funkier kind of fill, whatever it was I played. It, it was musically, it was cool. It was all right. And the guys turned around and they, they liked it and all that. And uh, I, I didn't think anything of it, but. You know, they, they're very funny about that. You have to stick to the arrangements. And I don't blame them. People pay money to see a band. They want to hear those. They want to hear you play live. You want to hear those records played live. And and you can't be jamming too much or going off off arrangement or anything like that. It, it disappoints the, the people that bought tickets, you know. So I, 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 I really respect and appreciate their their uh thing about you know playing just like the record stuff and uh you know joe's different he he stretches out he's a little looser jams a lot more and all that but anyway so after that particular show uh yeah henley called me up at the hotel and he said come on up for my room for a second and he didn't usually do that right and uh so i go up there and he uh he opens the door with the chain still on the hotel door he just opened it like three inches and he said hey yeah you know that drum fill coming out of that talk box so I, I thought he was going to compliment me <laughs> and he goes don't do that <laughs> <laughs> and he calls and you I, joe bob then, right <laughs> yeah joe bob don't do that and then he said have a nice night and then <laughs> then i was like oh man it's crushed man but that, it's it, it was cool and uh that, but what's the funniest part of that was the next day we had another show somewhere and we had a sound check and glenn fry comes over to me and he pulls out a couple of hundreds and says here play that fill again i went no <laughs> no, no way there's not enough zeros on that money <laughs> not if i ever want to play with the eagles again <laughs> no see see that's what i was telling you about chemistry see if you didn't have chemistry with the band you would have played you'd have been a jerk and played the fill again you know? yeah you know so this is cool having you on the show because uh you're a midwestern guy uh, Joe, let's talk about uh, you. So, you you know, back in the day, you joined Barnstorm, which was the name of Joe Walsh's first. Uh, well, he was in the James Gang, but then this was his thing, right? This was his thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's you a know, solo band. Yeah. So then you're hired and pretty much the rest is history, which is where we get to these deeper cuts. I mean, since I've had you on the podcast, I've I've searched more Joe Walsh tracks. I've gotten into Joe Walsh more. So it shows uh -huh. you, you know, you could still. And, and so let's talk about, you know, Analog Man. Uh, I'll just throw songs out and you make a comment 
on what you thought. So these are some great songs that I've just been playing lately off of uh, Spotify. It's all right. Mother says Meadows turn to stone. Obviously, you know, a lot of radio airplay with that one. Um, Ordinary average guy. You were on that album with luck, lucky that way. So uh, the confessor, I mean, there was just, there's just so much great Joe Walsh material out there, but we always just hear like, you know, life's been good or, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, Joe's known for, you know, his amazing guitar player. And, you know, I mean, he's a, such such a great guitar player and, and also slide player, which is a whole different animal. He's he's mastered that. And, um, uh, you know, and so and he's funny. He's funny as hell. And so I think the songs that have made it to the top 10 and, and, and the big hits have always been songs like, you know, that have obviously great guitar playing, uh, great licks, great guitar playing, but also funny lyrics. And, you know, like life's been good is the epitome of, of Joe Walsh lyrics. And um, so I think, uh, but Joe's a very serious musician too. I mean, he's, he's, he's a funny guy, but, but boy, he's also very serious and uh, deep, deep, musical uh, uh background and uh his mother was a classical piano player and so he uh we do these cuts on these albums and and uh, they're not the top 20 top 10 singles hits whatever you want to call them and um but there's some really uh, killer tunes and uh there's there's a uh, uh my my one of my favorite albums i ever made with joe was uh, but seriously folks that's the one with life's been good on it and uh, that is the the hit from that album life's been good it, ca- it came off of but seriously folks but on that album there's uh oh the stuff that's on there uh like indian summer and over yeah. and over and and at the station but we got a lot of fm play on a lot of this stuff but um you know life's been good was the big hit but um uh, there's some really killer stuff on that. Same with the first Barnstorm record. The uh, Ordinary Average Guy had some great stuff. The Smoker album had some great stuff. Also, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, 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 you, you Bought It, You Name It. There's also There Goes the Neighborhood's got some great stuff. And Joe's not always had like big top 10 hits on every record. But, uh, I mean, every record it made noise. But, um uh, there's a lot of these uh, uh, cuts, other cuts on these albums that are just killer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just awesome that, you know, your inspiration, like a lot of these guys, was the, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And then you ended up playing with John Lennon and Ringo. And, you know, but- everybody my age that is a musician uh, that saw them on the Ed Sullivan show had the same thing. They had the same to change their life. Joe Vitale, legendary classic rock drummer. Thanks for dropping by the city's backyard today. Thank you, Matt. It's always a blast dropping by the city's backyard. Hey, how about a great sandwich for lunch or delicious breakfast and cappuccino? This is Sergio. Come and see me at Francesca's Cafe and Grill right here on the Post Road in Norwalk, 249 Westport Avenue. Your friend Sergio here does it all from Italy to Norwalk to coffee and cannolis. Francesca is truly a piece of Italy right here in Hard Norwalk. Check out our great menu at francescasdeli.com. It's the city's backyard. Welcome back. Our guest on this segment is Liberty DeVito, Billy Joel's drummer for 30 years. Uh, 
you know, just a, a real cool down to earth guy. And here is, uh, here's the segment from earlier in the year when, uh, when we had on Liberty for the very first time, he, he, uh, dropped by the backyard from Brooklyn, New York. But you, in fact, were interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine a few years ago. And, and basically you, you decided that you wanted to let go of this anger that you had over the, the Billy Joel breakup thing. You know, you, you essentially got let go. Uh, but you had 30 years. I mean, that's more than most corporations will keep you employed for. So <laughs> it's yeah, really no big deal. That's like having a job at uh, a, a great job somewhere at, at Goldman Sachs or something like that. And right before you run in and retire, they let you go. So they don't have to give you anything. They come up with an excuse to let you go and you don't have to, they don't have to give you anything on the way out. But with you, it's a little more interesting because you you sort of had this anger that you were holding on to. So I found that sort of a interesting tidbit on the, on the Rolling Stone interview. Well, the thing that, that that kept the anger was I'm a hard headed Italian guy, and Billy is a hard headed Jewish guy, and Billy should have came to me. The the, the reason that the, this happened was because it was a he said she said thing. Somebody said something to Billy and Billy believed it, that I said something about him. Right. So he should have come to me and said, Lib, is this true? What I heard, you know, and I would have told him, no, it's not true. Uh, or I should have stood in his driveway and blocked him from coming out of his, in his car and said, what's going on? What happened? But we didn't do that. I said, you know, frig him. He said, okay, he's out without confronting each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we're too hard-headed. That, that's the worst kind of person to be, is to not go to the source and find out what happened. Think about Paul McCartney and, and John Lennon and the Beatles. They st- I mean, if you saw the Beatles documentary, George Harrison just was fed up, right? I mean, so yeah. it's it's just part of the the art. I know. It's, it, you know, it's a, a band, there's, there's a saying that it's easy to put a band together. It's almost impossible to keep them together. But... um it's like a marriage, you know, yeah. the, the way you, you fall out of grace with your wife or, or uh, a woman falls out of grace with her husband, whatever it is, it happens with a band too. You know, you just wait for that fickle finger of fate to fall on you. You know, it's amazing, right? I mean, you know, with the band, the Lords of 52nd street uh, with me, Richie Canada and, and Russell Jabbers, we have more guys from the original Billy Joel band, then like, like uh, bands like the Little River Band, Leonard Skinner, you know, there's more of us in this band than there was in those bands, than there was in those bands. Yeah, we had, to, we had to go to Billy and say, is it cool if we say we're the original Billy Joel band? And, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's it. You, you are. <laughs> you know, I found out that, that there's a difference between being Billy Joel's band and the Billy Joel band. Billy Joel's band is guys that he hires. Those are the guys that he Session musicians. Tonight. Yeah, that's Billy Joel's band that you see up there now. Billy, the Billy Joel band is means that he wanted it to be a band too. You made up with Billy Joel. Let's just briefly just uh, go over that experience. So what happened? You 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 woke up one morning and said, "I got to let go of this anger," and well, you, t- you took the high road or what? This is what happened. Um, we were inducted, the Lords of 52nd Street, which we are now, 
we were inducted, myself, Rich Kanata, Russell Javis, and the late Doug Stegmaier were inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. And when I was told about it, uh, I said, I'm not going, because I was really bitter about everything that went down. And a friend of mine, you know, they the Long Island Music Hall of Fame said, you guys come, you get inducted, you play a song or two, you know? And I was like, I, I don't feel like I really want to do that. And my friend who worked at Mapex Drums at the time, he said to me, he goes, do you really want to go back there again? Because, you know, I'm trying to get my life together and now I'm going to be asked to go back there again, you know, into the whole Billy Joel scene again. But I thought about Richie and Russell who really wanted to do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. But I got to the point where it was like, I'm not going to sound check. I, I had somebody else go and do the sound check, you know, like that kind of thing. So we played that night and it, there was, I was able to uh, have a, do a speech. And what I said in the speech was all the guys that played on the Stranger album and how when I was growing up, I met Russell Javers when he was 15 years old. And we started a band called Topper and Doug Stegmaier was in that band. So we were a band before Billy uh, found us. So I did a lot of things like played with Mitch Ryder and stuff like that. And so yeah. my, point, my point was... Billy did not make us great. He saw the greatness in us. That's why he took us on. You know, so when I said that, I was like, okay, I, that, that was kind of like a, listen, this is how it happened for real. So well, then, the best albums were the albums that you were on. <laughs> oh, yeah. The only album I wasn't on, and I'm only on one song, was River of Dreams. And then the two that preceded um, uh, Turnstiles, Piano Man and Street Life. You and Billy were... were playing out in Long Island and then you met and then he basically joined your band. Is that how it goes? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. So I yeah. knew Billy from when I was 17, he was like 18, maybe 18. And uh, we played in the same club called the, my house on Long Island. And um, we were the house bands, New York workshop and the hassles were the house bands. And sometimes we'd play together and I just knew him from passing in the dark and saying hi. You know, just like that. So when it came time that he wanted to come back to um, Long Island and New York, he told Doug Stegmaier, who was on the road on the on the on the Street Life Serenade tour, that he wanted to come back. He wanted the same guys to play on his records and go on the road with him because in L.A. he was using studio guys and a different band to go on the road. And then he said, I want a New York style drummer. And Doug said to him, you know, the guy already, you know. And so you had a lot of good years. So let's just play a quick little game. If you don't mind, Liberty, I'm going to ask you a question okay. and I just, you know, want a short answer. No long explanation. Here we go. Okay. Your favorite Billy Joel album that you played on. Nylon Curtain. Okay. And your favorite Billy Joel song that you play on. The last song in the set. <laughs> <laughs> um, what song do you think changed the career for Billy when you were in the band that really brought you to the top of the charts? Just the way you are was the one that broke Billy. Then it kept going, 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 and then it broke again with "We Didn't Start the Fire." Nice. So, and your favorite years playing for Billy Joel out of those thirty years. Oh, that, that's a tough one because there was great years of 
traveling and being in first-class hotels. But in the beginning, we did a college tour. And you know what they say about college tours? The girls are just all over you. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's why you became a drummer. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's Watching the Beatles. That's right. Just so, like Joe yeah. Vitale from Joe Wall, same thing. He was. You guys were all watching the Beatles that day. That that's right. That's right. It changed our lives. And I, so I would have to say the the Turnstiles, Stranger, Fifty Second Street days. Favorite venue in America that you played Madison Square Garden. Oh it, yeah, because it's it's a hometown gig. The Nassau Coliseum was another one. Mm-hmm. Favorite you know? country to play. Australia. Favorite kind of women from whatever country? <laughs> <laughs> Ones that have no shame. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that about covers it. And the only thing I had that was missing was the guy I looked at for 30 years, both live and in the studio. So I thought, it's time to end this feud. You know, we, we, sometimes when you break up with a girlfriend or a girl breaks up with a boyfriend, you talk trash about them, but inside you're hurting and going like, why did I say that? I, I love this person. You know, I loved them at one time and I still do. And that's how I felt about Billy. When I used to talk trash about him, I was like, Man, I still love this guy. And so I thought it's time to, to reconnect. And I wrote him an email and he wrote me back immediately. Wow. It was, it was just great. That's awesome. You know, let's, let's just hit on real quickly some of these other legendary musicians you've played with i mean paul mccartney elton john i mean that's tremendous yeah that was amazing to me (laughs) yeah i i mean a stevie nicks i mean this is incredible so in a way it's like people don't realize that you did a lot more than just play with billy joel i mean uh it's just an incredible career yes i i do feel great uh, I am over the bitterness. I'm friends with Billy again, but that because that's what I really wanted back. I didn't want the gig back. I wanted be be friends. I want my friend. You know, like I I wrote him the other day. I said, uh, Bill, I have something to tell you, and I know how you feel about uh, 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 record deals and stuff like that. But my band, the Slim Kings, we got a record deal in Canada, and he wrote me back, and and he said. Well, congratulations. That's really good. You deserve a record deal, you know. That's uh, so, so beautiful. Yeah, because he always loved when when people in his band would do something else and not just him. They they wanted you have to go find yourself too, besides playing with him. You you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have your own identity too as an artist, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Liberty DeVito, thanks so much for sharing your story on the city's backyard podcast thanks matt from hot to cold breakfast to lunch jv's deli has something for everyone jv specializes in thin crust pizza deli sandwiches pasta and more jv's deli and pizza serving norwalk for over 10 years 15 tyranny street up the road from city hall check out their great menu at jv's deli and city's backyard in this final segment we're going to be uh hearing from gary peterson who is the last active member in the band, The Guess Who. Great guy. And uh, this was when they were touring, and they were coming to uh, the backyard, and, and they had a date in New Jersey in 2023. So here's Gary Peterson 
the City's Backyard Podcast. Have you heard of the band, the Guess Who? Well, we have uh, the original member from the Guess Who, Gary Peterson, the drummer, who has been with the Guess Who from the very beginning. Uh, They're a legendary Canadian band who enjoyed chart-topping hits in the late 60s and early 70s with an impressive catalog of songs, including American Woman, These Eyes, and No Time. And uh, during the course of its career, the band has released 11 studio albums and charted 14 top 40 hits, two of which went to number one in the U.S. The Guess Who is best known internationally for its 1970 album, American Woman, which hit number one in Canada and number nine in the U.S. Welcome, Gary. The band is from Winnipeg, Canada. Do you ever watch that show, Ice Road Truckers? <laughs> I I have seen it. It's not not on my list uh, to watch all the time, but yeah, I I have I have viewed it every once in a while. I think they what? How do you say it? Manitoba? Is that Manitoba? Yeah, I That's think they do a lot of it there. It's one of the provinces in Canada. We have provinces. And the United States has, obviously, states. I have French-Canadian relatives. And in Canada, they say Zacco as opposed to Zaco uh, in, the, in the states. And I know Randy Bachman uh, has a similar pronunciation. It, it's really Bachman, right, who was one of the original members who's no longer in the band, obviously. But uh, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we, we would call him Randy Bachman. But when when BTO came out for some reason in the United States, it was Bachman Turner Overdrive. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to just talk about a little bit. The history of the Guess Who, because, I mean, you were a 60s band, right? That was formed originally in 62 under a different name. But then uh, in 65, you changed the name to the Guess Who. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, the original band was... Uh, Alan the Silvertones, which uh, Randy joined before I did. He was in probably a week or two before I, I, I was in. We had a band, Randy and I had a band called the Velvetones, and uh, Alan the Silvertones stole Randy, and then Randy didn't like the drummer, and he said, come and listen to the drummer from my band. And then I was in. So that was... That was Alan the Silvertones, which had three quarters of the original guests who Jim Cale on bass, Randy Backman on guitar, and me on drums. But uh, let's go back a little bit. Uh, let's let's just uh, name drop some of these great songs. These Eyes, Laughing, No Time, No Sugar Tonight, New Mother Nature, Hand Me Down World, Undone, Share the Land, and of course that number one Billboard hot hit. American Woman, which uh, went to number one in Canada, right? You've just tired me out with all that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's kind of the repertoire of the guests who, at least at least the singles repertoire. Uh, don't forget there were 14 albums with an awful lot of music on it, some of which sounds nothing like those hits. The four originals that did most of those hits you mentioned were 
Burton Cummings, elite, elite singer and, and piano, Randy Bachman, guitar, Jim Cale, bass, and myself. It was a quartet. Ah, okay. And then uh, Randy Bachman left the band in late 69 after American Woman, and we replaced him with two guitar players, Kurt Winter and Greg Leskew, who were on the Share the Land album from then forward. Of course, you know, I heard a lot of the Guess Who in the 70s. I mean, legendary band, of course. And BTO was uh, on the radio all the time, taking care of business, you know, Hey You, uh, some great songs. When Randy left, were, you know, was it a was it a bitter departure or or uh, not really? Uh, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> if you talk to Randy, it was a career move that he wanted to do. Uh, if you talk to the band, members that remained it was he was fired interesting so you'll have to read my upcoming book to find out the actual story of the day that that happened oh beautiful so so it's good i i asked a, a question that uh most people would want to have you know the answer yeah. to it, look look everybody is in the United States and Canada are free to do what they like to do within the, the, the constitutional law and, and, and federal law and state law. You know, if you want to go off on your own, which actually is the way the, the band broke up, um, I support your, your decision to do that. That's as simple as it is. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that you're still in the band all these years later. Did you ever imagine back in, you know, 65, was it when, when you, you know, got recruited that you would still be here today, putting out new music from the guests who being the last original member, the last man standing. <laughs> well, I don't think I thought any further than the next tour or the next show. So, um, you know, you keep putting one foot in front of, front of the other. And, and, and the fact that, I'm still here says that my decision other other than what Randy and Burton made my decision was to be here and be part of the guess who the question is why aren't they I mean it, it just it just was the amalgamation of the two best bands in Winnipeg at the time and we just continued forward uh continued touring at, you know locally in 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 Canada and, and and recording, and then one day we woke up and we had these eyes on uh, RCA Records. So it's just a matter of keep doing what you do until something happens. These eyes was was very you know slow song kind of kind of would you say a ballad? Absolutely, it was absolutely a ballad, and and we really didn't want these eyes to be the first song. We wanted to be a rock band, you know what I mean? And uh, RCA saw it as a hit, and they were right. Um, and and it was the first release off the We Feel Soul album, which was our first recording with RCA. American Woman uh, brings back memories for me as a as a teenager. Yeah, well, it didn't help. It, it didn't hurt that Lenny Kravitz re-recorded it for an, another generation to hear. Um, so, so maybe that might be part of the fact that 
people I have been listening it to it for so long. But uh, yeah, it's it's a, a song that we really did as a as a jam. You know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't something that anybody in the band sat down and 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 wrote said I'm writing a song and it's called American Woman. It kind of happened on stage one night in Canada, and then it grew from there till when when we we had finished morphing the song, we went into the studio and and uh, recorded it. Let's just revisit uh, "No Time" for a minute. The song "No Time" was, you know, as opposed to "These Eyes," "No Time" was kind of like a breakup song, correct? Yeah, it was, but it was the song, as I mentioned earlier. We didn't want a ballad to be our first hit. Um, I think it was no time that we really wanted out as the first song, and RCA said no. But no time is interesting because we recorded it twice. It, there's two different versions. One version on the Canned Weed album, which was recorded at uh, RCA Studios on the East Side in New York City, which is an old, old studio. I'm sure it's not there anymore, but it was where they did uh, groups like uh, Glenn Miller and Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman. And we didn't like the sound of the studio. So we, when we did the American Woman album, we, re we recorded No Time in Chicago at the studio we found, RCA Mid-America Recording Studio, which was on uh, North Wacker Drive in Chicago. It was more of a studio that sounded like um, the the Wheatfield Soul album, which was really recorded in New York City at uh, Phil Ramone's uh, A&R Studios. You were on the show, uh, the Johnny Cash show in 1970. Do you remember that? Uh... Of course. And who doesn't remember playing on the stage of the Grand Old Opry? I mean... If you're a musician of any kind, you know the history of that. And so it was great. And I, and I believe Marty Robbins was on that show, uh, which was a thrill for us because in, in the old Alan Silvertones, we were doing some of Marty Robbins' songs on stage. Um, and I think that was just before he died. So, yeah, I remember it vividly. As I recalled, you did Hand Me Down World and Share the Land maybe on that? Yeah, that was that was the 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 second uh, coming of the guess who with Randy not in the band that was with uh, Kurt Winter and Greg Gleskew, which started with the Share the Land album. Yeah, that, those are the two. So I've I've seen clips of those on YouTube every once in a while. That's the one thing. Um, there weren't a whole lot of television opportunities for pop bands in the early years. What do you say to 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 your longevity? Uh, you know, with the Guess Who. Well, I, I I guess we're becoming more of a hybrid now because we've invited uh, some wonderful Americans into our band at this point. Um, so we're a, a kind of a partnership, as Canada and the United States have been over many 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 years. Um, but yeah, the band originated as a Canadian band. And at first, whenever we changed a member, we we always drew somebody from Winnipeg. And then we expanded our our, our uh, 
the view and we, we got some people from Toronto and now we're putting people in who are some of the best musicians and players in music into our band from the beginning of the band to now all all of the members you know burton and derek like the same kind of music we are you know plus others other genres jazz if you listen to the old guests who there's a jazz cut on almost every album and a country sounding you know it's just the music that we listen to inspires you and influences you in your playing and your writing that's um, just incredible, uh, yeah. you know, the longevity of the band and the fact that you're still touring. And My uh, age at 78 years old, um, I have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world. Kind of, I'm, I'm just learning uh, the modern way to promote records. Yeah, I mean, you know, here you are on a podcast and I applaud <laughs> all these, uh, these classic uh, rockers that uh, come on the podcast and learn the technology. Are you now officially the leader and, you know, the, the guy that uh, is in charge of the Guess Who being the, the last original guy, member? Uh, I, I, I think more I'm, I'm the owner of the business along with still Jim Kale, who is my partner and has has retired like six years ago now um derek sharp really is the the leader in the musical and directional sense of the band and and that's because he's most qualified to be that you you i wouldn't be i wouldn't want to be the leader if i I i'm not qualified to be the leader so Really, Derek is a, is a great partner of ours in, in this endeavor, and and everybody in the band has a say as to what, what and where. I mean, we're not a, a, a it's more like a band than it is like uh, hired musicians, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, you want to mention the other guys in the band before we go? Yeah, um, we have uh, Michael Stertow. Uh, who's from uh, played with Lou Graham for many years, and uh, uh, Leonard Shaw is is the keyboard player. Has been with the band for a long time, and uh, we just had a change in bass players because our bass player was stolen by the Dead Daisies, and and now Greg Smith is coming on to be the bass bass player in the band. So, yeah, and then yeah, and then there's me. And then there's you, Gary Peterson. Well, this has been so much fun, Gary. What an honor to speak to the original guy. I mean, I, w- I wasn't even born when you were forming this band or when you were called called into play. <laughs> you know, But uh, you, you have well, some I, great I'm, stories. I'm very blessed to be still playing and still on the road as long as God sees fit. I will be there. That puts a wrap on the city's backyard. We'll be back next week with more interesting topics, great guests, and fun conversation about what's happening in and around your community. That's it for now. We'll see you soon.